Today we're doing the first of a two-part Star Wars celebration in honor of May the 4th be with you in Revenge of the 6th, albeit a little late. In this first episode, Steve and I are going to dive into 2016's Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. And next week we'll be back for part two where we'll cover the Ondor series on Disney+. Plus. It has been some time since we did anything Star Wars, and that's a shame. So I'm really excited to get back into this one. And there's a whole lot to unpack with this 134-minute movie. Uh, but before we do, do you have any opening thoughts on the film, Steve? Sure, a few things. Um, I'll openly admit that I'm not a fan of most of the films that have come out under the Disney Star Wars banner. I have a long list of criticisms when it comes to the sequel trilogy, as one example. But all that said, Rogue One is easily the best of the Disney era films, and it's the only one that I'll go back to again and again. Um, this film uh, found its own identity in the Star Wars galaxy as a war movie in space, uh, setting itself apart from the samurai-inspired epics with the Jedi or space westerns like Mando. So even though this movie covered some of the same ground that the Dark Forces video game did in the old expanded universe, this movie executes it well enough that I honestly can live with that. But uh, why don't we get into Rogue One, Mike? I I do not know that parts of Rogue One were in a video game before. Um, I think I'd like to hear about the points you're talking about there. I will also add that while admitting to not knowing what happens in Dark Forces, I have to wonder if the story of acquiring the plans in Dark Forces was expounded upon quite so thoroughly as it was in Rogue One and Andor especially. Uh, but as you said, let's get into Rogue One's pre-production and writing stages. Uh, Disney's decision to expand the Star Wars film franchise, starting with Rogue One, a Star Wars story, was actually influenced by the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which Disney has owned since December 31st, 2009. But the influence is slim, if you ask me. The, the MCU has franchises within franchises that all add to an overall story, whereas the Star Wars story films are individual films that only serve to tell backstory. Um, either way, I loved the idea of using the stories within the opening crawls of the films, and I was I was all kinds of behind it when I heard what they were planning on doing, especially after watching Rogue One, which is to this day one of my favorite Star Wars entries. Of the Star Wars movies that Disney has put out since they acquired Lucasfilm, Rogue One, in my opinion, is the greatest among them. Uh, George Lucas loved Rogue One so much that director Gareth Ed Edwards uh, posted this on his Twitter feed. It was the most important review to me. He's kind of like a god. I will take that conversation to my grave. His opinion means the world to me. <laughs> but I believe all of this got started not long after Disney purchased Lucasfilm, didn't it, Steve? That's right. Um, I need to preface what I'm going to cover with the fact that Rogue One addresses a question that was already answered in the previous Lucasfilm canon. And that question is, how did the Rebels get a hold of the Death Star plans in the first movie to begin with? And that is a fair question, of course, and there is a story in that. But the original answer was uh, Carl Katarn and Jan Orr stole them from the Empire in the original Dark Forces game. Uh, you know, Cassian Andor is certainly a different name, uh, but it is my guess that Jen Erso is in fact a play on Jan Ors. Uh, so it would seem to me that there was at least an acknowledgement of the Dark Forces game. Would you agree with that? 
It certainly looks that way. Uh, Jen Erso probably is loosely based on Jan Ors, uh, who was a supporting character in uh, Dark Forces from 1995. The names are extremely similar. Uh, their story roles are not too far apart either, and they're both involved with retrieving the Death Star plans. Given all that, I think it's likely that at least some of the writers were aware of Jan Ors and incorporated elements of her character into Jen Erso. Um, it's even possible um, that uh, Cassian was a slight nod to Kyle Katar, now that I think about it. They play similar roles, at least in the sense that they're both rebel agents who have a complicated relationship with the female lead uh, and a complicated past as well. That said, they're both very different characters in practice. Um, Kyle later became a Jedi, and Cassian is a much darker character in any respect. But I wouldn't rule out the two characters being rooted in a similar concept from the start. However, when Disney purchased Lucasfilm, um, they preemptively decided to decanonize everything except for the original six Lucas movies and the Clone Wars TV show. It's still a decision I have huge problems with because they ditched a Star Wars galaxy that was largely well-written and consistent just to make it easier on Disney to sell new content. Um, we've also seen expanded universe content recycled in pieces here and there. And in most cases, it wasn't used nearly as well as it was before. But that's neither here nor there. I mean, I'm mainly pointing all this out because the decanonization of the expanded universe opened the door to Ro for Rogue One to be made. And honestly, I would say that Rogue One is the only film to date that justifies uh, Disney's original stated intent behind wiping the slate clean. Um, by that, I mean that Disney had claimed to want uh, to free creators to, to tell new stories without worrying about what happened in previous stories. Had they not cleared away the EU, um, Rogue One would be contradicting what happened in Dark Forces. At the same time, I think Rogue One tells a great Star Wars story in its own right, and it does so with real heart and cleverness. So this is the one Star Wars project that truly does fulfill uh, Disney's early mandate about cleaning the fields so that uh, great new stories could be told. You know, I must admit, I I know almost nothing about the expanded universe Star Wars content of, of Star Wars. And I've only played a couple of the Star Wars video games. I played uh, Star Wars Battlefront on the PS2, which actually just confused the hell out of me. You basically just let <laughs> you wander around anywhere. <laughs> I played Star Wars The Force Unleashed 2 on the PS3, and that's actually only one of the Star Wars games I ever beat, actually. Uh, so yeah. Disney removing all of that didn't affect me. As, as I, All I really knew were the six films and the Clone Wars movie and the series. Um, honestly, when I did get around to wanting to read the expanded universe stuff it was after disney had acquired lucasfilm and as you po pointed out none of that was canon anymore so I, I just never bothered to get into it um all of that to say i i cannot comment much on the expanded universe however i would like to know exactly what things were taken for rogue one from dark forces uh, could you elaborate on that a bit sure uh though i will say that i like the force unleashed games quite a bit i mean star killer was a really cool character Anyway, um, Dark Forces was a first-person shooter series that was set uh, during the time of the Rebellion. Uh, the game was first released in 1995 for PC and Macintosh, and then the following year for the PS1. This was around the time when first-person shooter games were really starting to, to first take off. Uh, this was the era of Doom and Wolfenstein 3D and, and classic FPSs like that. The first uh, Dark Forces game was very much Wolfenstein in space. Um, you'd go and shoot stormtroopers, you know, explore Imperial bases, solve puzzles to open doors, you know, the usual Wolfenstein things. Um, the sequels would move away from the Wolfenstein formula a bit, as Kyle Katarn was later revealed to be Force-sensitive in Dark Forces 2 Jedi Knight. Um, you would start off with regular blasters and very much like the Wolfenstein thing, but eventually you would get a lightsaber, and then you'd learn to use Force powers, and that was cool. This, was, this ended up being such a successful move, in fact, that the series changed its name to Jedi Knight ever since then. 
So the games would also end up having more direct ties to the Legends canon, uh, featuring appearance from characters like Luke Skywalker and even Mara Jade. Um, as for the Rogue One connection, I mean, there's honestly not much to tell there. Uh, the mission to steal the Death Star plans is only the first mission of the game. You explore the Imperial base, you shoot up everybody, you steal the plants, and you leave, and that's it. Um, the game then cuts to a year later where Kyle Katarin and, and Jan Ors are on a completely new mission for the Alliance. And, and this is honestly why I'm not really bent out of shape about retelling the story with new characters, even though I prefer the expanded universe as a whole. Uh, the Death Star plans are just kind of a footnote for Kyle Katarn's story, whereas in this movie, it's a huge part of the history of the Rebellion, and it has massive stakes for the heroes. Um, I will add one small note of interest, though. The Dark Troopers that we see in Rogue One and later on in The Mandalorian are based on a similar project in Dark Forces. They're even called Dark Troopers in the game, and Kyle Katarn has to investigate what they are and where they came from. I think it's safe to say that this is another idea that the movie lifts from the game. If you ask me, uh, I know what a huge fan Gareth Edwards is of the franchise. And with all the nods, homages, and Easter eggs that he put in the film, I think Dark Forces was definitely acknowledged in Rogue One in a couple of ways, like you mentioned. And honestly, considering how small of a part retrieving the plans was in Dark Forces game, I think they did the best they could there uh, to with what they had to work with and, and still do the story that they wanted to tell, which quite frankly... Uh, it, it seems better than what happened in Dark Forces, uh, but but let's get back into Disney's purchase of Lucasfilm. Sounds good. Uh, so once the EU was removed, that cleared the way for Rogue One to be made. Uh, let's now get into exactly how that happened. Um, sometime after Disney's purchase of Lucasfilm on October the 30th, 2012, uh, John Knoll, who was the visual effects supervisor for the prequel trilogy, heard about some of the early concepts for new Star Wars movies, and he wasn't impressed with any of them. Um, understandably, <laughs> he began under developing his ideas for the film and started talking it up to uh, fellow ILM employees, refining the story into a 30-minute uh, pitch. So people at ILM liked it so much that he was encouraged to bring it to Kathleen Kennedy, who was the new president of Lucasfilm at the time. Uh, she loved the pitch, and the movie was put into production. The screenplay uh, was written by Chris Weitz and Tony Gilroy and developed from a story by John Knoll and Gary Whitta. None of them were in any way household names at the time, though Gilroy would eventually go on to make a 2022's uh, spinoff Andor, which we'll talk about next time. I will add, though, that Gary Whitta is a pretty decent writer from what I've seen. He has some solid science fiction credits, including The Book of Eli, The Walking Dead video games, which are good, and four episodes of Star Wars Rebels. He also uh, wow. co-wrote uh, After Earth, but I won't hold that against him. <laughs> but um, here's an interesting thing about Gary Whitta. Uh, he's even worked in comics. Um, Witta wrote a Dickensian uh, post-apocalyptic series for Image called Oliver, uh, based on Oliver Twist. It was drawn by the great Derek Robinson, and I can recommend that. And, and another fun fact, though, I actually covered that book on the Chico Comics page back in the day before uh, Mike and I started Omen Comics. Anyway, uh, Gary Witta is a good choice to write a Star Wars project, and I think that comes through in the finished film. <laughs> wow, that is a blast from the past. I mean, the Chico Comics page. <laughs> mm -hmm. For those of you that don't know, I, I used to run an online comic magazine uh, called the Chico Comics page where we reviewed comics, interviewed artists, writers, and, and other stuff. Well, it just so happens that everything we're doing now with the podcast and the comics all sprung from that magazine. Almost all of the people I work with today, I met through that magazine. More specifically, that is where I met my friend, co-host, some business partner Steve here. Uh, so I like that connection to the Oliver comic there. Uh, but let's get back into Rogue One, shall we? 
Let's do it. So let's discuss how the concept evolved into the story we have now. Uh, John Knoll pitched the idea as an episode of the unproduced series, uh, Star Wars Underworld, uh, 10 years before the film's development in 2003. Um, I'm assuming that the continuity issues probably presented a problem at that time, but I can't be sure about that. Uh, during the production of episode three in Sydney, uh, Noel developed a draft titled Destroyer of Worlds. Um, that quote is important. After the Disney acquisition, though, he felt as if he had to pitch it again or forever wondered what might have happened if I'd had, unquote. It turns out that that was the right timing for that pitch because it was ultimately accepted by Disney. Uh, so in May uh, 2014, uh, Disney announced that Gary Whitta would write the script. In uh, January 2015, it was revealed that Whitta had completed wor his work on the script and he was no longer be with the project. Um, Simon Kinberg was considered as a replacement. Um, later that month, it was announced that Chris Weitz had uh, uh, signed on to write the script for the film. Now, director uh, Gareth Edwards uh, stated that the style of the film would be similar to that of a war film, stating, quote, it's the reality of war. Uh, good guys are bad, bad guys are good. It's complicated, layered, a very rich scenario in which to set a movie, unquote. And I think that's absolutely on target. I mean, this movie definitely invokes the style of uh, war movies like The Guns of Navarone. In fact, I've said more than once on other shows that Rogue One is the Guns of Navarone in space. So I suspect that that was on Edwards' mind as well when he made the film. But um, here's something that surprised me a bit when I learned about it. Assuming Disney would not allow a dark ending, uh, Gareth Edwards had the main character survive in the uh, original version of the script. But the producers opted for a more tragic ending and never filmed the original version. That was the correct way to go. And while I feel that the characters were probably dead about halfway through the film the first time I saw it, I commend Disney for having the guts to go through with that. But we'll likely get into the ending soon enough, I'm sure. That we will. Uh, but I just have to comment on one point. Uh, I think that Rogue One would have had less weight had Cassian and Jin not died. Uh, the rebellion mm -hmm. was basically grasping at straws, trying to put something together. And their first offensive did not go well. In my mind, at at least part of the point of Rogue One is to give gravitas to a new hope uh, that, that was not there before. Uh, I will elaborate more on, on this in our Ondor discussion, but all of that to say they, they made the right move there by letting them die. It was a culminating moment that would be given even more weight under the light of the Andor series. Uh, but I believe there was some more writers that were involved in the script uh, we ended up with, wasn't there, Steve? Indeed, there were other writers that were attached to Rogue One, although they weren't credited. Uh, Simon Kinberg turned down screenwriting duties after Gary Witta's departure due to other commitments. Uh, Christopher McQuarrie contributed an uncredited script revision before Chris White signed up to resume writing the duties. I'm not certain what and all they might have specifically added, however. Um, Mike, did you have anything to add on the production of Rogue One? I do have just a bit to add, actually. Um, in May 2016, reports emerged that Rogue One would undergo five weeks of reshoots, with Tony Gilroy writing additional scenes, especially on the third act, as well as acting as a second unit director under Edwards. One of the scenes that was added during the reshoots uh, was where Darth Vader slaughters the rebels. Uh, this was added on just two and a half months before the film was released. <laughs> with input from Edwards, Gilroy oversaw the edit and additional photography of the film, which tackled several issues, including the ending. In August, Gilroy was given screenplay credit alongside Whites and was paid $5 million for his work on the film. Additionally, uh, Christopher McQuarrie, Scott Z. Burns, and Michael Arndt uh, all contributed to the script at various stages in development. You know, it's interesting how one of the coolest moments in the entire movie was added as almost an afterthought. 
But that was absolutely the right decision. Um, we really needed to see what Vader was up to, especially since he's in charge of getting the Death Star plans back when episode four starts. And it's cool to see Vader just cut loose, especially yeah. since the Rebels don't really have any sort of answer to Vader until uh, Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi get involved with the Rebellion. But I think you had a point you wanted to add, Mike. That that was a pretty sweet scene. And honestly, the whole ending of Row One connects so perfectly and seamlessly to episode four that it all serves to, to put a big old 10-ton weight onto the beginning of A New Hope. Uh, but you're right. I do have a couple of things to contribute as far as the story goes. Uh, Jen's father, Galen Erso, is modeled after J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. Both men share the same guilt factor of becoming an agent of death for building a weapon of mass destruction. Think about this. Oppenheimer's words when he saw the destructive power of what he had helped create were to quote Lord Krishna from the Bhagavad Gita by saying, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. He saw the awesome destructive power of the atomic bomb and it terrified him. Compare that response with, to when the Imperial weapons developer Orson Krennic saw the power of the Death Star on Jeddah and his response was, it's beautiful. Considering what Urso was based on, I, I think this comparison was exactly what they were going for. One scientist who gloried in the destructive power of his creation, one that was horrified to be a part of it. Krennic and the Empire, in this case, represents the government, who saw the weapon as a means to power and peace through terror like the Empire did. This would be a note that would, was again picked up in Andor, as we see that some of the rebels were willing to use those same tactics. But again, we'll get into Andor next week. However, the Empire had considerably less restraint than the U.S. did, and even destroyed Alderaan as well. But, I mean, <laughs> Tarkin is just a real piece of work. He truly is. Um, but to get back to your point on Oppenheimer, I think that was definitely an intentional influence. Uh, remember that one of John Knowles' previous titles for Rogue One was Destroyer of Worlds. Um, and the Death Star literally is the Destroyer of Worlds. So I think it's likely that uh, Noel had Oppenheimer's quote in mind from the beginning, and probably the idea for Gale and Urso was there as well. At the same time, I think you may also have been thinking of German scientists who were forced to working for the Nazis and what they had to do just to survive. I also wouldn't be surprised if Albert Einstein might have been on his mind as well. Um, Einstein had actually suggested to uh, FDR that he should look into making atomic weaponry through a letter, but he later regretted having sent it after seeing the atomic bomb's destructive power. My guess is that Noel may have intended for Galen Erso to be a composite character based on those influences. I, I, I can, I can kind of see that, I suppose. Although I think it was more in line with the German scientists you were talking about who were first to cooperate rather than Galen uh, actually believing in the cause. Uh, I will say that I can see Galen as someone who came up with an equation or something that, that simply describes the math of energy transference or something like Einstein with his E equals MC uh, squared equation that got twisted into something he did not intend or imagine for it. Uh, like they said on Star Trek Picard season three, episode two, there is no law of physics that can't be weaponized or broken by another law of physics. In other words, Galen's physics law was weaponized by Krennic's physics law. But that's just how I see it. That's a completely a fair take. And I, I fully admit I could be wrong on some of this. But I think the heart of the story works, uh, whatever the core inspiration was. I mean, there are a lot of scientists who imagine a, a use for a new technology, and they only see what it was designed for, not necessarily accounting for the human element. I wouldn't be surprised if Galen's original idea was for a more peaceful purpose in the beginning, like using Kyber as a safe and clean power source. 
But when you bring in people like Krennic, Tark, and Palpatine, it becomes weaponized, as you said. It probably is true that Krennic was meant to embody the dark side of science, while Galen represents its more lofty ideals. So I can see the connection you're going for there. Also, it's worth noting that the Empire had plans of developing a Death Star since at least Revenge of the Sith. We saw it uh, towards the end of the movie. So one way or another, some scientists or other would have been roped into developing this thing, even if it hadn't been Urso. Galen, of course, knew this, which is why he played along to sabotage this Death Star from within. But um, why don't we get into how this film is set apart from the previous films? Sure. Uh, but first, I have to say that I always had a huge issue with the powerful Death Star having such a fatal flaw in its design for the Rebels to take advantage of. But I really love how Rogue One handled it via Galen Erso. And, and you described the position he was in quite well. They, they made a somewhat cheesy element of Episode Four not only have some real weight, but also a believable story that wasn't just phoned in. But as you say, uh, let's get into some of the things that made Rogue One such a perfect fit and yet a standard standout film. In May of 2014, Disney announced Gareth Edwards would direct Rogue One, and that October, cinematographer Greg Fraser uh, revealed that he would work on the film. The film was made to be different in tone and style from the traditional Star Wars films, like not using transitional screen swipes. One of the other things they did to achieve this was not to use an opening crawl, as is traditional in Star Wars films. But it was not the first film to do it. The animated Star Wars film, uh, Star Wars The Clone Wars, uh, from 2008 didn't feature a crawl either, though it does still have the standard, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away opening text. Uh, but there were actually multiple reasons for Rogue One not having an opening crawl. The first and foremost reason is, according to Gareth Edwards in a 2017 interview, we knew from the start that John Williams would not be available for the film. The opening crawl decision was made before we started filming. Gary Whitta actually wrote one in the first draft. You'll have to pester him for it. I, I do believe that the opening crawl words were actually floating out there in space somewhere. We just have to fund NASA well enough so that their deep space telescopes can find them. <laughs> Let's crowdfund it. Make that happen. <laughs> a few fans reached out to Gary Widow on Twitter asking if he would reveal the opening crawl, but he refused. Tweeting on his Twitter account, it's not mine to share. I wrote it, but Lucasfilm owns it. Uh, the second big reason is that Star Wars story films were not intended to be chapters in the Star Wars saga necessarily, but rather anthology series of spin-off movies that, that told the stories the opening crawls and films only mentioned. Gareth Edwards said the idea is this film is supposed to be different than the saga films and that this film is born out of a crawl. There's this feeling that if we did a crawl, it, then it would create another movie. And that is an interesting point that I would like to talk about for a second. It could be truthfully said from a certain point of view uh, hmm. that Rogue One is not a prequel to a, to a New Hope, but rather a prologue to episode four in the style of a very long pre-title sequence, if you'll follow me here, especially as the events eventually connect immediately back to back. So in that light, Rogue One needs no opening crawl. I agree that it's for the best of the Rogue One doesn't have an opening crawl. Uh, I feel like the opening crawl should be reserved for stories that are part of the main Star Wars saga, which really is anything directly involving the Skywalkers. Uh, the closest I'm okay with is something like the Siege of Mandalore arc in Clone Wars, which focused on Ahsoka Tano and was set at the same time as Revenge of the Sith. But while that show deliberately evoked the classic Lucasfilm style, they didn't use the opening crawl. Uh, Rogue One is a different thing for me. I mean, sure, that movie sets up episode four and two of the Skywalkers are in the movie. I mean, specifically Leia and Anakin, but there are only brief appearances in a movie that's not about either of them. 
Um, the movie is about smaller players within the rebellion that sparked the flames of galactic civil war. By limiting when the opening crawl is used, I mean, that gives the crawl more impact when we do see it. It does give it much more impact, the way it is slid into the timeline there. It's like one of those online links where you can get more detail on something that is mentioned. But speaking of timelines, though existing in the same time frame as 2014 Star Wars Rebels, uh, it was revealed that characters from the series will not cross over into the movie. <laughs> Although there are several verbal references to characters from Rebels, both Dave Filoni and Gareth Edwards felt that they should exist on their own rather than build off each other. Interestingly, though, uh, the character Saw Gerrera, played by Forrest Whitaker, did actually cross over different series. He made his debut in Star Wars The Clone Wars, uh, A War on Two Fronts from 2012, uh, voiced by Andrew Kishino. Kishino voiced Guerrera again in Star Wars The Bad Batch from 2021. But that would not be the last time. Saw Guerrera later appeared in the third season of Rebels, as well as in Ondor from 2022, both performed by Whitaker. It's true that there are no direct uh, crossovers between Rogue One and Rebels. However, there is a small nod to Rebels in the movie. Um, as the At the Rebel base on Yavin, there's an intercom, intercom voice calling for a Captain Sinjula. That's a reference to Hera Sinjula, who is the Twi'lek pilot who acts as the mother figure for the ghost crew in Rebels. So we can assume that Hera probably flew in the space battle during the Battle of Scarif. And we know that she survives that battle because the end of Rebels makes it clear that Hera makes it through to the end of the war. I suspect they kept the Rebels references limited because they didn't want to spoil the ending of that show. Uh, as for Saw Guerrero, he was a good character to bring back. I mean, I like the idea of showing more extremist characters who are on the side of the rebellion. We get to see that in this movie with Saw, but also with Andor, uh, with characters like Luthan Rail. Now, we'll dive into the awesomeness that is Luthan Rail during part two when we talk about Andor. But for now, I think it's important to show uh, rebels who aren't squeaky clean, and Rogue One sets the tone for that very well. This is a civil war, and at this time, there aren't any active Jedi who are out in the open. That means non-Force users have a hard jo uh, job ahead of them if they want to keep the Empire at bay. It's important to see that there are players within the Rebellion who are willing to make some hard decisions to overthrow the Empire. That's the a theme that they play up hard in Andor as well. Uh, Saw is just a good character to explore that idea with, both in the movie and in the Andor show. You know... Interestingly enough, you, you talk about extremists. <laughs> uh, Saw Gerrera's character, uh, and his name even, seems to be an homage to Argentinian freedom fighter Ernesto Che Guevara. Uh, both men were considered extremists in their battles against dictatorships, resulting in mixed views of, of their legacies. I would certainly say that, comparatively speaking, uh, Saw Gerrera believed that he alone had the only clear path to victory, despite all of the rebel factions who avoided him, and he was certainly a freedom fighter, um, an anti-colonialist, I mean, if you want to see the Empire that way, and, and a guerrilla warrior, uh, but I think that's about where the similarities end. You know, it's often said that one man's terrorist is another man's uh, freedom fighter, but with Saul Guerrero, the lines between the two are really blurred, and that makes him interesting. When he first shows up in Clone Wars, he's fighting the Separatists alongside the Jedi, and his sister ends up getting killed. So when he comes back in this film and in Rebels as a hardline anti-Imperial, um, it's a natural fit for him. I just love the idea of this hardline rebel who doesn't play by the Alliance's rules. Um, by the way, uh, Saw's hatred of the Separatists ends up becoming an issue again later, but we'll talk about that when we get into Andor. That we will, Steve, and, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but if I could switch gears here, uh, they actually played around with quite a few names for the story before they chose one. And honestly, the reason is kind of funny and, and cool at the same time. 
While still in production, working titles included Rise of the Empire, Shadow of the Death Star, and Dark Times. <laughs> the title Rogue One was finally settled on when they decided it was not part of the, the Skywalker saga. It's the Rogue One. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love that little inside stuff where things just evolve out of conversations between creators. Um, and the 2016 Star Wars celebration, Edwards said the title had two other meanings. It was a military sign referring to Red Squadron from A New Hope and a description of Jen Erso's personality. But check this out. There's a bit of retroactive continuity added by them using the call sign Rogue One in the film. In Empire Strikes Back, the team led by Luke Skywalker at the Battle of Hoth was, was named Rogue Squadron. And Rogue 2 is the call sign of the Rebel Snowspeeder pilot that finds Luke and Han on Hoth. So like I said, retroactively, but considering what Rogue One accomplished that day and the tragic nature of their success, it can be said that, that Rogue Squadron was likely meant to honor the team and the fact that there is no Rogue One on the team and the call sign is never mentioned in the original trilogy suggests that like numbers are retired in sports to honor those that bore them. I think Rogue One was retired to honor them as well. And speaking of retiring call signs, I think Blue Squadron was retired in honor of their sacrifice on Scarif as well. But check this out. Gareth Edwards and his creative team discovered some old film canisters while rummaging around Lucasfilm warehouses. When Edwards asked what they were, an employee said they were old uh, episode four footage from 1977. The discovery led to the inclusion of unused Episode 4 material featuring Red Leader and Gold Leader in Rogue One. But back to the Blue Squadron. The space battle also features the previously unused Blue Squadron of X-Wings. Blue Squadron was supposed to be in the original film, but because the blue color of the fighters created issues with the blue screen technique that could not be overcome with the technology available in 1977, the color was changed to red. This also provides a plot point to explain why Blue Squadron is not seen in the chronologically later films, as the Blue Squadron is the only squadron to get down to the surface of Scarif before the shield closes and is ultimately wiped out in the battle. During the final battle, Red 5's X-Wing is shot down and the pilot is killed. This call sign is then reassigned to Luke Skywalker in Episode 4. You know, I thought there was reused footage from A New Hope when I saw the space battle again recently. Uh, your explanation totally clears that bit up. Um, that was a nice little touch by Edwards, and I'm impressed how seamless it feels compared to the rest of the film. Because of that, it feels more like a true prequel to Episode 4 without feeling like it's pandering too much to nostalgia. As for the retcon, uh, what we see is with Ro the Rogue Squadron uh, call sign is one of the best kinds of retcons. It it's not the kind of retcon that openly changes things but the kind that fills in uh, gaps to explain things. It's not a, you know, uh, what you know is wrong sort of thing. We didn't know where the Rogue name came from and nobody ever really asked. It just sounded cool. But when you insert Rogue One into the tapestry, you realize it's a tribute to the rebels who died on Scarif. It just adds a nice new layer of meaning to what was already there and that's cool. But uh, speaking of Scarif, I think you had some points you wanted to add, Mike. There are a couple of points I want to add, but first, let me agree with you that this is the best way to retcon anything. Rather than change things, simply add another layer to what is already there. Uh, but onto the points I wanted to add. The Death Star plans are kept in a secure facility on planet Scarif. The name Scarif bears a striking similarity to the acronym SCIF, a sensitive compartmented information facility. A SCIF is a secure facility used to, to store sensitive and classified da data. 
but while that is an incredibly apropos, uh, it is not actually where director Gareth Edwards got the name from. Gareth Edwards said that he came up with the name Scarif after ordering a copy at Starbucks shop and the barista misspelled Gareth's name as Scarif on the cup. I thought that was totally random. I mean, what would it have been called if he had not gone to Starbucks that day? <laughs> but but anyway, uh, here, here's one tidbit I thought you might find interesting. The Citadel on planet Scarif where the Imperial data is stored is reminiscent of the planet Rakata Prime, which first appeared in the video game Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic from 2003. Oh, man, as big of a Knights of the Old Republic fan as I am, I can't believe I missed that connection. Now I need to go back and play the end of the game again. Uh, though, since you mentioned the connection to the Ricotta homeworld, it's possible that Scarif actually is Ricotta Prime, but it was renamed by the Empire. I mean, Ricotta Prime is far enough out of the way that the Empire might have used it for one of their facilities. I doubt we'll ever see that question directly addressed, but it's a neat connection. But uh, why don't we talk about the casting process, Mike? That sounds like a great idea, Steve. The main cast consists of Diego Luna as Cassie and Andor, uh, Ben Mendelsohn as Orson Krennic, Mads Mikkelsen plays Galen Erso, and actually his older brother is uh, Lars Mikkelsen, provides the voice of Grand Admiral Thrawn in Star Wars Rebels, just as a random side note. Uh, Mads Mikkelsen became the first major credited actor to appear in a Star Wars movie with Rogue One, a James Bond movie with Casino Royale, and an MCU movie with Doctor Strange. This record was later matched by Benicio Del Toro with James Bond License to Kill, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. Uh, the movie also starred uh, Riz Ahmad as Bodhi Rook. Genevieve O'Reilly uh, reprised her role as Mon Mothma, whom she previously played in Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith from 2005. And she would reprise her role again in Disney Plus's series Andor. However, all but one of her scenes from Episode Three were deleted. Um, after voicing the uh, voicing Darth Vader in four Star Wars films and numerous tie-in projects, James Earl Jones once again returned to the voice of the character. The latest theatrical release where Jones voiced Darth Vader was in Star Wars uh, Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, uh, but his most recent voice work was for Star Wars Rebels in 2014. Oh, right. Um, James Earl Jones voiced Vader in Season 2 of Rebels. Uh, in that show, he first appeared in the two-part uh, Siege of Lothal arc where Vader pretty much manhandles both Kanan Jarrus and Edra Bridger at the same time. Um, Vader then goes on to show his epic piloting skills as he demolishes the Rebels alone in his TIE fighter. It's great. But I can't mention uh, James Earl Jones and Rebels without mentioning Phantom of the Apprentice, where Vader has an epic fight with Ahsoka Tano. I will say that when they bring on James Earl Jones to, uh, to voice Vader, the vast majority of the time, the, the stories are usually excellent, except for Kenobi. And that's certainly true of his brief appearances in Rogue One as well. Um, the main cast is very good, and I, I appreciate that we're able to bring back people like uh, Genevieve O'Reilly and uh, Jimmy Smith as Bail Organa. All these actors from the prequel trilogy coming back to reprise their characters um, gives a stronger sense of continuity with the film. But there's another classic Star Wars character that makes an appearance, and this is one they couldn't bring back the original actor for. So they had to find another solution to that problem. You want to get into how they solved that one, Mike? 
I sure do, Steve. The character Grand Moff Tarkin, played uh, in A New Hope by Peter Cushing, is revived and performed by Cushing, despite his death in 1994. Cushing was resurrected with CGI by Industrial Light and Magic with the blessing of his estate and actually performed by Guy Henry on set. Henry and Industrial Light and Magic went through hours of old footage from Cushing in order to get all of his facial mannerisms right. Henry then performed the role on set while wearing head-mounted cameras that recorded his facial movements. ILM then replaced his face with a digital mask of Cushing. As luck would have it, a, fa a face cast of Cushing made for Top Secret from 1984 had recently been found in an archive, which was a, which was of great use in this process. Cushing received a with special recognition uh, to Peter Cushing honorable mention in the credits. Similarly, uh, with the blessing of Carrie Fisher, the character of young Princess Leia has a brief cameo, and they recreated her facial features with CGI as well. While Leia was physically performed by Ingvid Dila, Carrie Fisher passed away over the week after the film's release in the United States. She was able to see the film before her death and reportedly squealed with joy at the, seeing the younger version of herself at the end of the movie. I'm amazed that the CGI performances are as good as they are in this film. They later improved on their deep fakery with Luke and the Mandalorian, but uh, Rogue One was an important step in getting there. Tarkin and Leia are both key players in Episode Four and they do have to be represented in some way. Uh, they found an actor who was able to uh, capture Peter Cushing's voice very well, and I appreciated that they were able to make Tarkin work in the film. The CGI work is still noticeable in this movie, and I have a feeling it's not going to age that well in the long term, but it was an important step in making the process better, and I think that they probably did the best work they could have at the time it was made. You know, CGI work is growing by leaps and bounds these days, especially as filmmakers have transitioned over to digital filmmaking. I think CGI is one of those things that will evolve on such a scale that every 10 years, the past work will be cringeworthy at times. Uh, but alas, that is ultimately for the better. Uh, but if I, if I could, I would like to talk about a few of the cast members specifically. Uh, Donnie Yen of Ip Man fame played uh, Guardian of the Wills, Sharut Imwe. Uh, that he is one of the Guardians of the Wills is, is a key point, as the Wills were part of the 1974 draft of Star Wars called The Star Wars from the Journal of the Wills. The Wills were wise beings who narrated the Star Wars saga to their pupils, explaining it as having happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, this flashback format was ultimately deemed unnecessary and abandoned. There is a consensus among fans that the Wills are the species that Yoda belonged to, but this has never actually been confirmed. Um, that would actually prove really interesting if the Wills come up in The Mandalorian. Uh, but that callback to the old draft was not the only one either. Cassian mentions the Guardians of the Wills when speaking with Jen on Jeddah before the attack on the hover tank. Also, more on topic to Donnie Yen, my understanding of the original concept of the Force was that it was something that we acquired from others. And on that note, Sharut says, may the Force of others be with you, which seems to directly call back to that old idea. But this is unfortunately an idea that seems to have been left sitting in Rogue One. Yeah, the Wills is a concept that gets alluded to, but not much is done with it. Uh, I think Lucas even wrote a draft for a possible sequel that ended up making reference to the Wills but that got dropped too. Might be for the best in the case of Rogue One, since the Force is not really the focus of the story. It just adds something really cool to Chirrut's character. But speaking of Chirrut Imwe, um, I think you had some background on him you wanted to share, Mike? 
I do, Steve. Uh, Donnie Yen's uh, character, Chirrut, is based on Zato Ichi, uh, the protagonist of the Japanese film franchise that ran from 1962 to 1979, and two later films in 1989 and another one in 2010. Uh, but Donnie Yen was not the only one up for the role. The studio was also eyeing Jet Li. Uh, Yen was, of course, approached first because of his salary of $4 million compared to Lee's salary of $10 million. Uh, to gauge his interest and, and as a secondary plan, director Gareth Edwards also offered him the role of Bayes. Uh, Yen expressed interest in playing Chirrut, uh, but was hesitant in accepting it because it required him to be away in London for five months. However, Yen asked his son if he would mind if daddy was away for five months making the Star Wars movie. And because his son loved Star Wars and comics, he had no problem with his dad doing that at all. In fact, his son even bugged him about doing it until Yen's reluctance was finally worn down. <laughs> I thought this bit was funny. <laughs> Donnie Yen's son told him that he was finally cool when he got the part. <laughs> <laughs> but on the creative side, uh, it was apparently Donnie Yen's idea to make it Shroop blind. And I think it really made the cooler character a lot cooler than it would have been otherwise. Uh, but Yen was not the only actor talked into the role by his kids. Uh, Jan Wen, who played Baze Malbus, uh, did so because his kids told him that he needed to because the character was a hero. <laughs> Uh, Chirrut Imway is easily my favorite character in this movie, and so much of that is Donnie Yen. I'm, I'm glad that you picked up on the Zatoichi uh, connection, because I wanted to dive in that a little. In fact, I've actually gone and watched uh, some of the Zatoichi series, uh, because it's been referenced so often in Star Wars. And, and I can, as you can see, I have the, the actual DVD of this. Um, <laughs> so, but moving on. Um, yeah, so, um, in fact, Zatoichi and the idea... Um, of the Blind Swordsman comes back a lot in a different Star Wars projects. It's most obvious with Kanan Jarrus and Rebels. Um, at one point, Kanan is blinded and he has to use the Force to see. Um, but um, Kanan's not the first one to do this. Foresight is a very well-established power going uh, back at least to Kreia and Knights of the Old Republic too. I mean, Kreia was mostly blind as well, but um, spoilers for a decades-old game, uh, she was also a <laughs> Sith Lord who preferred to use Foresight. Um, the interesting is the thing is that Kreia considered normal sight to be a distraction compared to what she could see through the Force, because what she saw through the Force was better. Um, as she described it, uh, quote, when one relies on sight to perceive the world, it is like trying to stare at the galaxy through a crack in the door. You must learn to see crude matter for what it is for the veil to be lifted, uh, unquote. I think it's likely the same way for people like Kanan or Chirrut, even if they didn't have Kreia's mastery of the Force to guide them. Even though Chirrut is blind, he can see more clearly than a sighted person because of his connection to the Force. I must confess to my first experience with a blind swordsman being 1989's Blind Fury starring Rudger Howard. So I'm not all that familiar with Zatoichi. Uh, however, I have seen my fair share of blind martial artists since then. Uh, they base their sight on hearing and touch and that same kind of sixth sense that we all have that allows us to like feel when someone enters the room or, or notice when something's just not quite right. Uh, but they have harnessed and focused that sense, their intuition and reflex to a much sharper degree. As far as the force goes, Yoda took it one step further than saying that your physical eyes are, are but a partial view when he said that your eyes can actually deceive you. 
Uh, but in the Force, they see things like Michael Nero does, as they are uh, connected. And con no, more than connected. Bound together. Yoda says that energy both surrounds us and binds us. In that light, you could see how the Force of others could project their intentions. And, and when connected to the Force, that could be sensed. I I'm reminded of Qui-Gon talking to Anakin's mom about Anakin being able to see things before they happen. And that's why the Jedi appear to have such quick reflexes. Without the Force, one can can only react to a movement already in motion, whereas with the Force, you can act before the movement. Uh, but this is just me trying to find the science of it all. What do you think of that, Steve? Before I get into that, I just want to mention as an aside that Blind Fury was also inspired of Aizatoichi. I mean, that series has inspired a lot of different blind swordsmen over the years. Um, as to how it works, it's certainly possible that that might be right. Um, in A New Hope, when uh, he's wearing the blast helmet, Luke learns to operate without sight, reaching out with his feelings. So he's able to sense the remote shooting at him, and he can react on instinct to deflect the blaster bolts. I think it's partly force precognition and partly the force user being able to sense patterns of energy and how they're connected. This is what I think of that Obi-Wan meant when he told uh, Luke that it's partly controlled, but that the force also guides his actions. This ability seems to be a very basic thing that Jedi younglings learn, since we see Yoda teaching children in much the same way that Obi-Wan does with Luke. So it's completely plausible for Chirrut to be able to learn this as well. Also, interestingly enough, uh, Chirrut is the closest thing to a Jedi that we get in this movie. I mean, there's no question that he's Force-sensitive on a very basic level. He can see through the Force, he can use it to guide his martial arts, and he can use it the Force to avoid being hit by blaster fire. But the way they play this is clever. Chirrut is not a Jedi. He's a warrior monk. They're embracing a different kind of Eastern tradition from the typical samurai motif, and it works. As presented here, the Guardians of the Wills are more like a Shaolin-type monastic order devoted to the light side of the Force. It might be that Yoda or members of his people established that order, but as we see with Sherrod and Baze, the Guardians accept humans into their membership. It might even be that Force sensitives that weren't accepted as Jedi could have found a place among the Guardians. I, I just feel like the whole concept of light side warrior monks opens up a lot of possibilities that they really haven't touched on, all, uh, on at all yet. But in this movie, it allows for a Force-sensitive hero who isn't part of the Jedi Order, even if he follows their teachings. And Donnie Yen did a great job of bringing him to life, and his martial arts work in the film is outstanding. I do find it interesting that, in, in Tarut's words, uh, Bayes Malbus was once the most devoted guardian of us all. Sharut still used the classic weapons of his order with the staff. He is peaceful and relies more on the spirit than his actual weapon. Uh, Bayes, on the other hand, has abandoned his face and, and the ways of his order. You'll notice that Bayes is hard. He looks angry all the time. I think that war bred fear in Bayes, and that led him away from the light. He's also taken up a cruder weapon with his repeating cannon. I think that when Chirrut uh, was at peace with his death, Baze remembered his faith. And when he repeated over and over again that the Force was with him and that he is one with the Force, it was actually a moment of conviction. He remembered who he once was and what he once believed. And I think he was actually crying at the end because of how far he had strayed from the path. Chirrut uh, was, was very much a light in the darkness of the film. Yeah, that's the impression I got with Baze as well. Uh, the rise of the Empire and the destruction of the Jedi Order probably broke uh, Baze's faith, while Chirrut held to his own beliefs. Um, I also think you're right that Baze's arc is about recovering his faith and remembering who he was. He finds something worth dying for, and he goes out like a boss. That is a recurring motif in this film, as it turns out. But let's get to the next character on our list. That sounds like a great idea. You know, <laughs> I do love me some Chirrut. 
<laughs> but my favorite character in the film was actually a droid that brings up the next cast member I want to talk about. Alan Tiddick was the voice of motion voice and motion capture of K2SO. To prepare for the role, he took mask lessons with a New York-based mask teacher called Orlando Pabatoy to learn to express more thoroughly through Barbie language. He has said that the role was one of the best he had had worked with worked on because it allowed him to wear a motion capture suit on set along with the bonus of walking on 13 inch stilts. I'm not sure how that made things great, but okay. Uh, and speaking of droids, uh, C-3PO made a brief cameo, making Anthony Daniels the only actor to appear in every movie. He also appeared as Tack, uh, one of the humans Chewbacca runs into on Kessel in Solo, A Star Wars Story from 2018. Anthony Daniels was jokingly disgruntled that Anthony, that Alan Tiddick uh, was allowed to play K2SO in the relative comfort of a motion capture suit, whereas Daniel had to endure years of discomfort and injuries in the C-3PO costume. <laughs> Daniels laughingly cursed Tiddick after the Rogue Runs premiere. Tiddick later said that a fuck you from Daniels was one of the highest compliments he had ever received. <laughs> but I believe there were several other cast members that jumped out at you specifically, weren't there, Steve? There are nine, count them, nine actors from Doctor Who appearing in this movie. Uh, Felicity Jones as Jen Urso, uh, Warwick Davis as Weetief CUB, Daniel Mays as Tivacan, Sharon Duncan Brewster as Senator Pamlo, Michael Smiley as Dr. Evanson, Ariane Bakare as Blue Four, Paul Casey as Admiral Raddus, Jimmy V as R2-D2, and Spencer Wildling as Darth Vader. For those curious about when they appear, uh, Felicity Jones was in The Unicorn and the Wasp from Doctor Who's fourth season. Uh, Warwick Davis appeared in season seven's Nightmare in Silver, uh, a Cyberman episode written by none other than Neil Gaiman. In addition, uh, Alistair Petrie, who played uh, General Draven, also did voice work in the Doctor Who audio adventures. Wow. <laughs> Rogue One was like a giant Doctor Who reunion party. <laughs> Between Return of the Jedi and Willow, I have been a fan of Warwick Davis for a really long time, but I had no idea he was in Doctor Who too. Mm -hmm. I, I recognized Felicity Jones, but I could not nail down where I'd seen her before. So I guess I know that now. Thanks for that. Uh, mm -hmm. But speaking of Felicity Jones, I understand that she was not the only one up for that role. Isn't that right? No, she wasn't. Uh, Tadia Maslany, uh, Rooney Mara, and Kate Mara auditioned from the female lead role of Jen Urso, which went to Felicity Jones. Uh, in very early stages of production, Jen Urso was a sergeant. Even though it was later cut from the movie, several action figures still refer to her as Sergeant Jen Urso. This was because the, the change was made after the action figures had already been produced. However, the movie's novelization confirms that Jen had been given the rank of sergeant by Lieutenant uh, Taidu Sefla. Um, my guess is that probably Jin was given the rank posthumously after her death on Scarif, since she had only just joined the Rebellion, but I don't know. Also, another interesting detail, uh, the pseudonym Liana that uh, Jin uses was also used by Mara Jade in Star Wars Legends novel by Timothy Zahn, and they're awesome. To be fair, that would not be the first time that Star Wars toys were not quite accurate due to when they were released. Uh, so actually, it's, it's, it's kind of funny that it worked out that way. However, I'm not a fan of posthumous rank advancement. <laughs> you know, you, you want to give her a medal or something? I'm all right with that. Uh, but you've got to earn rank through hard work and dedication, not by noble deeds. So, I mean, if that's how they did it, then, then that's how they did it. But I, I think a medal probably would have been more appropriate there. 
Uh, yeah, that's fair. And I can see where that would be an issue. I, I was just spitballing for a no prize there, if I'm honest. <laughs> I just felt it was weird that they would give a ring recruit in the Rebellion a sergeant's rank like that. But, you know, who knows? Why don't we give uh, move on to uh, principal photography and the visual influences for the film? I can do that. Uh, principal photography on the film began at Pinewood Studios in Buckinghamshire in J July of 2015 and wrapped in February of 2016. The film then went through extensive reshoots in mid-2016, which just added to an already big budget for the film. With an estimated production budget of at least $220 million, it is one of the most expensive films ever made. But let's talk about the director for a minute. Director Gareth Edwards named 1982's Blade Runner 1979's Alien and Apocalypse Now, and 1992's Baraka as visual inspirations for Rogue One. But those films were not his only inspiration. Director Gareth Edwards and the design team had a specific World War II and Vietnam mashup look they were going for in the ground battles of Rogue One. To accomplish this, they literally took old pictures taken from uh, World War II and Vietnam, replaced the army helmets at, with rebel head covers, added X-wings to the shots. <laughs> they they also drew storyboards inspired by photos from Middle Eastern conflict zones. Rebel Alliance soldiers in the Battle of Scarif are seen wearing M1 helmets, a type of helmet used by the U.S. military from 1941 to 1984, showing that the scene was inspired by battles fought on tropical islands in the Pacific theater of World War II. The scene in which the rebel fighters fire on the stormtroopers as they are running out of the storage facility doors and being gunned down is reminiscent of what happened to American troops as they tried to leave the landing crafts on Omaha Beach in Normandy, France on D-Day. You know, it looks like Gareth Edwards is as much a fan of Ridley Scott as you are, Mike. <laughs> Not that I blame him at all. <laughs> but I, I can see a little bit of Blade Runner in the establishing scene uh, where Cassian Andor first appears now that you mention it. That planet he was on definitely had that Blade Runner aesthetic. I'll also add as an aside that Blade Runner is also an influence on Andor, especially with the design of Morlana 1 in the first episode. But getting back to Rogue One, uh, the Apocalypse Now influence also shows with the Battle of Scarif. I'm reminded a bit of the scene where Bill Paxson is going on about surfing while the whole area around him is getting napalm. <laughs> the, the Vietnam War movie influence really works uh, when talking about a tropical planet like Scarif. At the same time, those influences aren't too obvious if you're not looking for them. But I think there were other uh, production elements that you wanted to mention. There are some things I wanted to point out because they show what a huge fanboy Edwards is. Rogue One is a distinctly Star Wars film in the spirit of the original trilogy and it sets in costumes and everything. This was painstakingly worked on to create this effect. Director uh, Gareth Edwards instructed the art department to only use elements that would have been available in 1977 to get the movie to look contemporary with Star Wars Episode 4. The flight control animations, for example, had to be kept as simple as possible, resisting the urge to make them too flashy. According to David Crossman, some of the costumes used in the original trilogy were reused here. Talk about authenticity. Uh, the Rebel base at Yavin 4 features several full-size cardboard cutouts of X-Wings and Y-Wing fighters, using the same technique of filling out the hangar as A New Hope did in uh, 1977. 
Darth Vader's appearance in this film is meticulously patterned after his look in A New Hope. While Vader's chest plate is uncovered in 1980s The Empire Strikes Back and in 1983's Return of the Jedi, uh, his costume initially had its Sith robes draped over his shield, as well as red lenses in the eye holes of the mask. Considering this film takes place mere days before Episode 4, the costume designers recreated Vader's look down to the last detail. Last but not least, and this one I, I you'd have to be a major Star Wars fan to even catch, but there was even an observance of location, so to speak, to add to the feel of the aesthetic of the film. Episode 4 features one shot of the main heroes standing outside the Yavin 4 temple. Although the temple itself was a matte painting, uh, the actors in the foreground, including various rebels and their transports were filmed at Cardigan Sheds in Bedfordshire, England. The Rogue One crew returned to the same location to film not only exteriors, but this time also to recreate the interior of the Rebel base there. But it was not just the sets. When Jen and Cassian are walking through the crowded streets of Jeddah, they bump into two guys uh, and where one of them says, hey, you just watch yourself. Those are Dr. Evazan and Panda Baba, or Walrus Man, from the cantina scene in A New Hope where Obi-Wan Kenobi cuts off Baba's arm when he makes a move on Luke. The line Baba says is lifted directly from that scene. I remember those guys. And honestly, that was one of the few times where I cringed a little bit. Uh, there are references in this movie that are cool and weren't too uh, distracting or off-putting. The small reference to Hera Syndulla uh, in the Rebel base was cool, for instance. But I felt like these two guys from the most Isley Cantina were kind of randomly dropped in that scene on Jeddah just for the nostalgia that didn't really work so well for me. They would also would have had to have made a narrow escape out of Jeddah before the city got blasted into ash. But everything else you mentioned was really cool, and I appreciate getting everything from A New Hope right. I like that they went out of their way to recreate the Yavin base, and they did a great job of recreating it. But speaking of classic elements, let's talk a bit about Vader's castle and what was involved in making it. Hell yeah. Uh, Darth Vader is first shown living in a castle-like fortress on an active volcano on Mustafar. This is important and ties back to episode 3 from 2005 where Anakin was last seen on Mustafar after fighting Obi-Wan. Uh, this seems to suggest that the planet maintained its strategic position even after the Clone Wars. But the location of Vader's castle is based on an unused concept created by Ralph McQuarrie uh, sometime between episode 4 and episode 5 was developed. Vader's Tower appeared in 2019's Vader's Castle comic from Marvel and again in Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, in 2022. According to Ralph McQuarrie, the design for Vader's Castle was based on the shape of a tuning key, symbolizing the turning to the dark side. Uh, the Jedi Temple was also based on the same shape, but it was colored white as opposed to the castle's black. Another interesting thing about that first time we see Vader in Rogue One is that he is in a Bacta tank, like the one we see Luke uses in Empire Strikes Back after being wounded by the Wampa. This is a nod to Vader's history in the extended universe, actually, where it's known that he repeatedly spends an ex extended period of time in the Bacta tanks in hopes that it will repair the damage done to his lungs from the lava on Mustafar as he despises having to rely on a mask to breathe. Yeah, I really love the idea that Vader would set his castle on the same planet that destroyed Anakin Skywalker. Now, probably a lot of people would ask why Vader would want to live on a planet that is a direct reminder of everything he lost. But I'd argue that's exactly why Vader chose that location, or possibly why Palpatine chose it for him. Because it is a reminder of his pain, and that fuels his rage. So the constant reminder of everything that he believes the Jedi took from him makes him more powerful, fueling his anger and his connection to the dark side. 
It especially feeds his rage against Obi-Wan Kenobi, since Mustafar is a constant reminder of what Obi-Wan did to him in that fight. That rage only makes Vader stronger, and from a Sith perspective, that makes uh, Mustafar a perfect location from a, for a Sith Lord to operate from. And honestly, I have to say that the idea of a castle perched atop a volcano planet just looks really cool. <laughs> it very, it, it definitely does. A castle on a bank, on a volcano is very cool, and it, it might even be as close to Star Wars gets to a proper Bond villain layer. <laughs> but seriously, I think you're right on the money as to why Vader would have had a castle there and why Palpatine would have wanted him there. But if we could move on to post-production, there are a few things I'd like to bring up. The first being that some things that were in the script did not exist in the real world as far as making of the film goes and had to be added later in post-production. For instance, there was actually no Death Star blueprint data as seen on the screen in A New Hope during the pilot briefing. That meant that the visual effects team had to redraw the entire animation frame by frame for this movie. Wow, that is pretty impressive. I, I can't say that I uh, envy the visual effects designers that had to work long hours on getting that down exactly, but it was worth it. I mean, they did a great job on that. You know, I know a little bit about dealing with individual frames uh, in a video from being the editor for Omen Comics Podcast Network. For instance, there are 30 frames per second. And I can tell you that it, it could be a meticulous job, but then you add on to that frame-by-frame -frame digital coding and my brain just starts to smoke. <laughs> so I'm with you on not envying the VFX team on that one. And you were right when you say it looks good. Uh, the fit is seamless and maintains that same feel from episode four. But let's move on to the second thing I wanted to bring up in post-production. In trailers and promotional footage, Jin and Cassian are seen running through the Imperial base and on the beach uh, on the planet Scarif, with Jin carrying the data storage device holding the Death Star plan. Like many promo shots, such as Jin standing in an Imperial hallway without her helmet and a TIE fighter rising in front of her on a, on a catwalk at the top of a tower on Scarif, these scenes were not used in the final film. Director Gareth Edwards later explained in an interview with Empire that the shot was part of an abandoned third act storyline where Jin and Cassian survived despite director Gareth Edwards wanting all of the heroes to die. After speaking with Kathleen Kennedy and executives at Disney, he expressed his this opinion, and to his surprise, Kennedy agreed and gave him permission to kill off the characters. I, I can't blame Edwards for head, hedging his bets, even if it might have cost more to do it that way. Still, I am glad that Disney eventually allowed Ed, Edwards to film the version he wanted to make. It definitely works better if you feel the sense of impending doom at what is very much a suicide mission. Had uh, Disney backpedaled away from killing the group, I probably would not have enjoyed this film nearly as much. Because about halfway through my first viewing Rogue One, I, I just knew these people were probably dead. It's a war movie, and you're going to have casualties in a battle this huge. This is a story about a group of people facing nearly insurmountable odds, sacrificing their lives so that their hope for the rebellion could survive. Allowing any of them to walk away from Scarif in one piece would have felt like a cheat. This is just is not that kind of Star Wars film, and we needed to see the stakes of that in a real way. This movie really broke new ground with that decision, but that wasn't the only first in this movie, was it, Mike? No, it was not. Rogue One, a Star Wars story, had a lots of firsts, actually. For starters, it was the first movie to introduce each new location with on-screen captions added in post-production. Well, except for two, the, the ring planet that Krennic finds Galen Erso on and Mustafar. 
Oddly enough, it was also the first Star Wars movie to actually say the name of the film in the story. Uh, this is the first Star Wars film in which no one mentions the name Skywalker. It's also the first and so far only Star Wars film without any transition swipes. I thought this one was a little odd. Rogue One is the first Star Wars film where the protagonist in the story doesn't use a lightsaber. In fact, there's not a single lightsaber duel in the film or even a green, blue, or light side lightsabers represented. You only see Vader's red saber as he kills the rebels. Also, a Jedi had been at least one of the protagonists in every film before Rogue One. Also, like Star Wars version of the Rogue Reservoir Dogs, Rogue One is the only Star Wars movie where basically everyone dies at the end. Right, and that sells the whole war movie and space flavor of the movie. And as we mentioned before, the closest thing to a Jedi in this movie is Chirrut Imwe, who is a warrior monk rather than a samurai, and he uses a staff. Um, I'll also add that there's no reason for the Skywalker name to be brought up at all. Luke doesn't show up until episode four, and there's no reason for Anakin's real name to be mentioned. Which, again, is funny, since there are two Skywalkers in this movie. <laughs> this is a very grounded Star Wars film, and it is very much about the ground-level perspective of the Rebellion. So let's get into the character who really defines that viewpoint, and that's Cassian Andor. Sure thing. Um, Cassian immediately establishes himself as a hard, calculating super spy. As he said, he had been doing this since he was six years old. So he has learned to think on his feet, act quickly, and dispose of even the innocent if it will further his cause or duty. Like that guy he killed after he got the information. You could tell he didn't like doing it by him taking that moment to look at his body. But just as quickly, he reasoned that he had no choice and moves on. That scene perfectly set up the later contrasting scene where Cassian was supposed to kill Galen Erso, but he didn't. Like he said, he had every chance to pull the trigger and he didn't. But as far as why he didn't, I only have two theories. Uh, knowing that Jin was on the platform and not wanting to kill her father in front of her is one of the reasons I can think of why he did not follow his orders. But that, that doesn't really seem to fit the character expressed in that opening scene. The only other theory I have is that Cassian might have assumed something was wrong when the Empire killed the staff and, and hit Galen. That perhaps he is not the villain the rebels think he is. Either way, he disobeyed a direct order, and that was a big deal to him, you could tell. I think that was why he was so frustrated with Jen, who had no concept of the complexities involved in what Cassian was does and was merely reacting to the death of her father and looking for someone to point the gun of her rage at. And speaking of complexities, perhaps it was a combination of factors that made Cassian not kill Urso. I really like the way Cassian put it. What do you know? We don't all have the luxury of deciding when and where we want to care about something. Suddenly the rebellion is real for you. Some of us live it. I have been in this fight since I was six years old. You're not the only one who has lost everything. Some of us just decided to do something about it. Basically, there was a lot more going on than Jen had any clue of and was, and was entirely too green to be trying to preach about right and wrong there. Jin definitely had no idea what Cassian had dealt with in his life, but to offer some context, Cassian's development in Andor probably helps to explain uh, some of this. He wasn't always a true believer, and it took a hard, lot of hard life lessons before he fully accepted the rebel cause. He had moments where he broke the rules, including placing himself at risk if it meant saving people. Uh, he'd been a prisoner in an imperial labor camp forced to work for the Empire, and he may have seen himself in Galen. And Cassian has also seen people who have gone to extremes in the name of the rebellion. I think Cassian was facing a moment where he was starting to wonder if he was becoming the thing he hated, and he just couldn't go through with it. 
Cassian is an assassin and he's capable of doing some pretty dark business, but I feel like he just couldn't kill someone who was truly trying to beat the Empire in his own way. I think you touched on the major points there. And and while I do want to get into this in more depth and actually have a fair amount to say, I'm, I'm going to hold off into digging too deep into that until next week when we get into Andor. Uh, but I will say that it is my opinion that it was Cassian's time in the Imperial prison camp that directly affected Cassian's decision to not kill Galen Erso. I think he saw what was happening and recognized it because he had seen similar behavior from Imperial officers there. Uh, but on to the next thing I want to bring up. Saguera asked Jin if she was fine with the Empire's flag reigning across the universe, and I found Jin's response interesting. She said it's not a problem if you don't look up. That seems to imply that if you just mind your business and don't cause trouble, the Empire isn't a concern. I mean, if you think about it, Jeddah was a war zone because the populace took issue with the Empire raiding the Temple of the Wills for kyber crystals. A totally understandable reaction, but I bring it up because they tested the Death Star's weapon on Jeddah. It was a military target. Up until the time when Tarkin destroyed Alderaan, I think their targets were all military ones. Leia seemed genuinely shocked when Tarkin destroyed Alderaan. If it had been typical behavior, I think her response would have been different. All of that to say, though, that perhaps life was not as bad as the Rebel Alliance or Saw Gerrera might have you believe. Like, for a simple guy like myself that does podcasts and writes comics and generally avoids political discussion or action, I might get along fine in the Empire if the Empire was in control is the impression that I'm getting. Uh, not that I'm saying the Rebels were wrong, either. The fears they were fighting against eventually came true once the Empire had a planet killer in their arsenal. But it does seem to suggest a kind of peace is what the Empire was going for, albeit one enforced by terror. That was an important realization for me. I, I had heard the Empire talk of peace, uh, but I always wondered what they meant by that, considering the tyranny and coldness of the Empire. Uh, but I think I get it now. Basically, with some exceptions, don't start none, there won't be none, seems to be a way to survive. That's probably a way uh, that a lot of people looked at the Empire in the early days of the Rebellion. That echoes the kinds of beliefs that people like Uncle Owen had in A New Hope. You know, just mind your own business and there won't be any trouble. And to a certain extent, there is some truth to that. At the same time, the Empire is never going to be content until it's either crushed everyone beneath its heel or it's overthrown. You can only invade that kind of dictatorial rule for so long. I think Jin realizes this when Jeddah is destroyed and then Saw and Galen are killed. Cassian learns a similar lesson in the first season of Andor, and I think that's what prompts him to join the Rebellion as well. And that leads me to a point I've wanted to make for a while. I've always had a problem with Palpatine and Tarkin's whole ideology of ruling through fear and building super weapons. This is a large part of the reason why I tend to prefer uh, less conventional Imperial leaders like Thrawn, who recognize the weakness of this approach. What we see in Rogue One is a failure of Sith ideology, because the Death Star is such a terrible weapon that it scares people into resistance against the Empire. If you know you could lose your entire planet if someone steps even slightly out of line, it's easier to muster up the courage to resist, because it's either die in resistance or die waiting for this thing to kill you. At that point, you might as well resist because odds are that you're going to die anyway. So the Empire going around casually blowing up entire planets ends up creating the rebellion they're trying to suppress. This even threatens people who are trying to keep their heads down because the Empire is willing to accept any amount of collateral damage if it means maintaining order. You could get wiped out along with your planet just by being in the wrong place at the wrong time, and there is no keeping your head down from that. That's going to inspire rebellion from a lot of people who might otherwise do nothing just because they have no other choice. In the end, the Death Star had to be destroyed, whatever it took to do it. 
The longer this thing exists, the more innocent people potentially get wiped out by the Empire. The Rebels had no other alternative other than to do what they did, and Jen recognizes that by the end of the film. You're right about Jen seeing that by the end. Uh, she said it quite well when she asked, what chance do we have? What choice do we have? The time to fight is now. You, you also laid out pretty well the position that the rebellion is, is put in there, and it is all the Empire's fault. Uh, that is something that those who rule by fear never seem to understand. Desperation can make even the most cowardly of people stand up and take a swing. There is a line in all of us, I, I think, I, I know there's certainly one in me, where the switch just gets turned on if I feel like I'm out of options and backed in a corner. Survival just kicks in and you act. It seems like that's where Jin, exactly where Jin was at that point. A man without hope is a man without fear, to quote Frank Miller. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's pretty much right. Um, we eventually find out that elements of the rebellion, including uh, Luthan Rail, were counting on imperial overreach to fuel resistance to their tyranny. Leia recognizes this as well uh, with her own speech to Targan. Uh, the more you tighten your grip, the more star systems would slip through your fingers. The, the rebel leaders saw the fatal flaw in the Empire's entire approach, and if I'm honest, with the Sith's belief system in general. In the end, the Rebellion was able to leverage that weakness into a victory, though not without a lot of sacrifice. Uh, but why don't we move on? Sure, uh, but I really like that thread with what Leia said, too. Just another part of Episode Four, made more awesome by Rogue One. Uh, but yes, let's move on. Uh, Bodie Rook, the former Imperial cargo pilot who defected to the rebels under the influence of Galen Erso, suffered Borgale as the at the hands of Saw Guerrera. Uh, Guerrera made it seem as if you lost your mind after this, and I was at least under the impression that this would be a permanent reaction. But it would seem Borgale does not work quite like Saw thought it did. The reaction to Borgale reading Rook's mind was more of like a fog over his mind than it was a sanity issue. You'll notice that when Cassian says that you're the pilot, it, it looks, it's like the fog just cleared. Like, like all he needed was a reminder of who he was and the fog dissipated and he came back. Yeah, that was a bit of a strange development. Uh, I like the idea of this Lovecraftian tentacle creature being used to extract information at a sanity cost, but we don't see that too well in practice. Uh, still, it does kind of show you how far uh, Saw is willing to go to destroy the Empire, which I think might have been the real point. I suppose that it does show how far he's willing to go to destroy the Empire. I actually took that a bit differently. Uh, Saw could no longer distinguish friend from foe and had himself lost his mind. Notice the difference in how he talks and acts in Rogue One compared to how he was in Andor. Saw's own ideology drove him mad. At least that is how I took it. Uh, but I don't see any reason both of us could not be right there. No, I don't either. Uh, Saw definitely seems to have become paranoid in the years since the Clone Wars. Though to be fair, that paranoia isn't completely unfounded, since the Empire really was out to get him. <laughs> um, years of being in hiding and on the run, not knowing who to trust, who's an Imperial plant, that gets to you after a while. I mean, he also had to deal with a lot of untrustworthy people just to survive and accomplish his goals, like Luthan Rail. So I'm not saying you're wrong about that. It, it could very easily be both, as you say. Nice. I think we both filled in some things about Saw Guerrero there that makes me think about him differently. That That's totally how I'm going to see that now. Uh, but I'd like to switch gears here and talk about kyber crystals. In both of the non-canon legendary Star Wars universe and in the canon materials like Star Wars The Clone Wars from 2008 and Star Wars Rebels, the color of kyber crystal uh, determines the color of the lightsaber it powers. Jin's crystal is white, which makes her crystal extremely rare. The only in-canon 
character uh, to use a white lightsaber is Ahsoka Tano in the two animated series. When Jin is searching for the Death Star plans in the vault, she reads off Dark Saber. The Dark Saber is an energy sword akin to a lightsaber created by the first Mandalorian Jedi. It has been seen in Star Wars, The Clone Wars, and most recently in The Mandalorian. But the Dark Saber's Kyber Crystal is black and unlike any other color of Kyber Crystal. Considering that Kyber Crystals choose their owner, I think that says something about the first Mandalorian Jedi. Itari Vizsla. Uh, I don't know anything about him, but he must have been an extremely unique individual to be both the only Mandalorian Jedi and to have had a black kyber crystal choose him. But but that little rabbit hole aside, the idea of kyber crystals originated in early drafts of episode four by George Lucas and was first mentioned in Alan Dean Foster novel Splinter of the Mind's Eye. That book is particularly relevant because it was the first original Star Wars novel released after episode four premiered. In the novel, which was based on Lucas's ideas for a possible sequel, the kyber crystal was an artifact that gave a Jedi immense power over the force. Chirrut stated the strongest star have hearts of kyber as kyber crystals are revealed to be used as fuel for the death star it makes the station's name quite appropriate i don't know where the idea that the death star drew power from kyber crystals came from but it makes sense it also sounds like something palpatine would do there's something truly horrible in the idea of using the source of jedi lightsabers to power a planet killing weapon of mass destruction as for lightsaber and crystal colors that's something we've seen uh, some inconsistency on in the original canon, it used to be that different kinds of Jedi would use different lightsaber colors. The traditional blue is the color of the Jedi Guardians who focus on saber combat, while a green is the color of the Jedi Consulars who specialize more in diplomacy and force mastery. Since you mentioned Ahsoka, she began with blue sabers, and it made sense that she would if she were a Jedi Guardian, and then she eventually uh, took the uh, white sabers after leading the, leaving the Order. It, it's a detail that tends to be overlooked now, but I like the, the idea that lightsaber colors have a meaning behind them and denotes a Jedi's role. Uh, anyway, we do eventually see how Jedi receive their crystals in a Clone Wars episode where a group of Jedi Padawans go to the planet Elam to a place called the Crystal Cave. Um, though we know that they were mining on Jedha as a major source of their kyber, I, I would imagine that the Empire was probably doing some heavy kyber mining on Elam as well. They were mined from Elam, from what I understand, but really it was from anywhere they could find kyber crystals. Kyber crystals were looted from Jedi lightsabers, temples like on Jeddah, Elam, and other worlds. That thing about saber color is particularly interesting, and you just added a whole layer to the lightsabers Luke used in Episode 5 and 6. In Empire, Luke acted more like a Jedi Guardian in the sense that his focus was on lightsaber combat, hence the blue saber, and why it would have been the color of Anakin's saber. But in Return of the Jedi, Luke has taken on a much more diplomatic approach, and his focus, I'm thinking about how he dealt with, with uh, uh, Jabba the Hutt specifically, and, and his focus is more on the Force, so in that way he was like a Jedi Consular, uh, hence the green saber. Uh, as for white lightsaber, I was under the impression that white sabers were used by the gray Jedi. That's why Ahsoka Tano ended up with a white saber. She had, in fact, turned into a gray Jedi. Is that accurate? Um, from a certain point of view, maybe. <laughs> um, Ahsoka is a specific kind of gray Jedi, but not the type I usually think of when I use the term. Um, many gray Jedi try to find their own balance between the light and the dark, and those Jedi tend to use purple lightsabers. In general, I tend to associate purple sabers with characters who lean light side, but have a strong element of darkness in them. 
Um, Mace Windu tended to be fairly aggressive by Jedi standards, um, and he uh, channeled his aggression into his saber combat. Mara Jade used the purple lightsaber as well, and she was a former Imperial assassin who turned to the light. Neither of them gave into the dark side, but they did draw some strength from it. Um, another interesting but darker example is uh, Darth Revan from Knights of the Old Republic. Revan wielded a purple saber during his time as a Jedi, and then he added a second red saber when he became a Dark Lord of the Sith. Revan is kind of a unique case, though, having been a former Dark Lord of the Sith, but not having fallen in the traditional sense. His turn to the dark side was an act of sacrifice for what he considered the greater good. He, hor he did horrible things to win the Mandalorian Wars, and then later on when he ruled the Sith Empire, but... Raven also, Revan also saved, saved the galaxy twice, first by defeating the Mandalorians when the Jedi Council wouldn't lift a finger to help, and then later when uh, Revan ended the Jedi Civil War by defeating his apprentice Darth Malak. Revan's violet and red sabers uh, embody the two contrasting sides of his character, the savior and the conqueror, the unconventional hero and the ruthless tactician. There are book covers um, after that of an older Revan uh, that returned to the light, and he's shown with a green lightsaber. But all in all, I feel like the purple saber is most reflective of who Revan is and his complex character. He's more like a gray Sith, if that makes sense, finding balance between the light and the dark within himself. But to uh, get to your question, I think the reason Ahsoka uses white instead of purple is that she doesn't ride that line between light and darkness. There's not much real darkness in her. Um, she's, for the most part, a Jedi heart. Ahsoka just disagrees with the rigid orthodoxy of the Jedi Council, and she wants to help the downtrodden and those ignored by the system. I mean, she's neither Jedi nor Sith, having rejected both points of view. Um, Dave Filoni even said at one point that Ahsoka's sabers are white because, quote, she's not a Jedi and she's not evil, unquote. So I'd consider her a, a, a great Jedi, just an unusual one. Um, if Ahsoka's anything, I think she's in, closest to embodying the ideas of, uh, ideals of Qui-Gon Jinn. Uh, she just took a step that he never did. Um, Ahsoka learned from Obi-Wan and Anakin, both of whom knew uh, Qui-Gon's teachings uh, the best among the Jedi at that time. The difference between the Qui-Gon and Ahsoka is that Qui-Gon was willing to work within the system created by the Jedi, while Ahsoka chose to stand outside of it. Hmm. Uh, it, it it almost sounds like there there really is no actual gray. Uh, like... Like there has to be a slant to it. You're you're either a gray Jedi or a gray Sith. I mean, even Ahsoka, who rejected the Jedi Council and the teachings of the Sith, is still considered a Jedi because she's a good person. Uh, there were still lines that she would not cross. But with with, with Revan, you get a gray as well. But he's willing to do what must be done regardless of morality, and for that, he is a Sith. But honestly, Mace Windu uh, seems to do more than just additionally embrace the darker side. As we saw in his treatment of Palpatine, uh, Windu was ready to kill him, willing to do what must be done regardless of morality, which seems to make him a gray Sith. Yet he is a Jedi Master. I mean, <laughs> are there any real grays that aren't slanted to one side or the other? Also, we seem to have talked about every lightsaber color but Ray's yellow sabers. Uh, what does that say about her? Now, that's an interesting question, um, but I will say in defense of Mace uh, that he was facing a difficult situation for any Jedi. Uh, Palpatine had already killed three people in front of him, and Mace had barely fought him into a corner. On top of that, there was no way that the Senate was going to convict Palpatine if he ever went to trial. His corruption was too deep-rooted in the system by then. Um, Palpatine probably had leverage against most of the Senate by that point, and I wouldn't even be shocked if he had dirt on them. So Mace was facing a choice of breaking the Jedi code by killing him, possibly saving the Republic, 
or do the legal thing while uh, Palpatine likely walks away to do even more damage. That's a huge decision. And I don't envy anyone who'd have to make that call. All that said, I agree that the minute he goes through with uh, executing a defeated opponent, he's no longer a Jedi at that point. I see. Uh, that actually does clear things up a bit. I, I can certainly appreciate his position, and I can't say that killing him would not have crossed my mind. It, it would have been better for everyone to end the oppression of the Sith and to restore peace to the galaxy. Well, everyone but Mace Windu. So for all intents and purposes in his heart, he died a gray Sith. Uh, but that said, I, I believe you wanted to elaborate on grays for me. Sure. Um, as for the idea of there being truly balanced grays, uh, the closest I can think of is Jolie Vindo from Knights of the Old Republic. He walked away from the Jedi Order because he disagreed with the Council's view about attachments. Uh, he married a woman who turned to the dark side when the Sith Lord Exar Kun rose to power, and Jolie was forced to kill his wife during the Second the Great Sith War. But even after that, his belief on attachments were hugely unorthodox and against the teachings of the council. Um, as Jolie put it, love doesn't lead to the dark side. Um, passion can lead to rage and fear and can be controlled, but passion is not the same thing as love. Controlling your passions while being in love, that's what they should teach you to beware. But love itself will save you, not condemn you. So um, I always got the impression that Jolie lost faith in the council because he felt that their teaching had failed him and his wife though he never said so explicitly. Um, regardless, Jolie left the Jedi Order and he went into a self-imposed exile, helping others while uh, following his own path. Uh, Jolie was more inclined to bend the rules than someone like Ahsoka was, but he was also strongly opposed to the Sith. He was a, a bit more gray than Ahsoka, but they have a lot in common too. But let's turn back um, to your question on yellow sabers. Rai creates a yellow uh, saber at the end of Rise of Skywalker, and that is, initially seems like an odd choice. I wasn't sure why she chose yellow at first, but I think I may have an explanation. Um, in the Legends canon, yellow is the color of the Jedi Sentinels, who tend to rely as much on their skills as on the Force. So basically, these are Force users who are enhancing their own natural skills through their perceptions with the Force. And that kind of makes sense for Rai. This is someone who started off as a salvager, and she has an affinity for technology that she gains through the Force. It certainly explains how she's able to fly the Falcon and things like that. So on that basis, yellow is a reasonable choice for Rye. This may be the only time I'll ever say that something in episode nine makes sense to me, but there you go. <laughs> wow. So yellow lightsabers do speak of balance, even if it's not an ideal ideological balance, like how gray is traditionally defined. Also, Jolie does sound about as close as you can get to a true gray. I like the infusion of love into his ideology, uh, but this has turned into quite the rabbit hole. <laughs> so let's switch yeah. back into talking about Rogue One. Now, there are several things in this film that fill in some holes in A New Hope. Uh, before the Battle of Scarif, Senator Bail Organa tells Mon Mothma that he's returning to Alderaan. What's interesting about that is that it clears up any doubts as to whether he was on Alderaan when Tarkin destroyed it. Up until this point, it had only been stated in some printed adaptations of A New Hope. Also, the Battle of Scarif itself helps to explain why the Rebel Alliance was only able to muster about 30 starfighters to attack the Death Star and why they would let Luke, a pilot with no experience in X-Wings, join the attack. The battle severely depletes the Rebel Starfighter Corps and its leader, General Merrick, is killed in action. Luke is recruited to replace Red 5, who is also killed at Scarif. The battle also adds weight to Luke's admonition to Han that the Rebels could use a good pilot like you. You're turning your back on them. 
I can definitely see what you're saying there. I mean, the movie does connect the dots between the films nicely and adds more connective tissue between the films. I also always had the feeling that Bail Organa was on Alderaan at the time of its destruction. I mean, we never see him in any post-episode four stories at all. And that always led me to believe that he died during the explosion. Leia never mentions her father again either, which also hints at Bale's death. Still, it's nice that Rogue One basically confirms this. The, the movie does a good job of plugging story gaps with the original saga, usually with very small offhand lines or references. But I think there was another moment that you wanted to get into, Mike? There is. Uh, another scene that connects some dots to A New Hope was when Governor Tarkin announces that the Emperor has dissolved the council permanently and that all territories are directly controlled by regional governors. Although the reason for this was never explicitly stated, it is likely that the Emperor did this in direct response to the Battle of Scarab, as this was the first open assault of the Rebel Alliance on the Empire. He probably used it as an excuse to implement some form of martial law throughout the galaxy and rid himself of the last governmental body that stood between himself and absolute power. I think that's very likely the case. Uh, we've seen over and over again that Palpatine loves to take advantage of acts of rebellion to tighten his grip on power. This has been his MO ever since the Clone Wars began. By this time, Palpatine has been looking for an excuse to wipe away the Senate, and Scarif gives him the political ammunition he needs to do it. So that makes total sense to me. It sounds like we're on the same page there then. Let me bounce this one off you then. There's mention of a secret Imperial technology used by the First Order and the Last Jedi when Jin looks for the Death Star plans in the Scarif Vault. One of the topics she sees is called hyperspace tracking, revealing that the Empire is doing research on that 34 years before the First Order uses the device that allows them to do that. And speaking of hyperspace, this film confirms through dialogue that the Death Star can travel through hyperspace, though it is never seen entering within or emerging from hyperspace. This is very telling of how far into the future Disney was planning with their films if they're planting seeds that early on in their first film. Yeah, the hyperspace tracking was just a small bit that I kind of groaned at, just because I never really cared for the plot point that it foreshadows. Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of issues with this, with The Last Jedi. Um, <laughs> now, the, the, the use of hyperdrive has been one of the most in inconsistent elements of the Disney films anyway, but since this is not a sequel trilogy episode, I'd rather not go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> so let's move on with that. Um, in fairness, though, I don't have a problem with the Death Star having a hyperdrive. I'd argue that a hyperdrive would be a necessity if you want to move the station into firing position. I think a hyperdrive was even included in the stats for the Death Star in the West End uh, Star Wars RPG. So this isn't the first time uh, somebody's had that idea. I'm not sure I get the cringing response there. Um, of all the problems I had with the sequel trilogy, that was not one of them. Uh, but as you said, this is not a sequel trilogy episode. So, so let's move on. You know... <clears throat> You know how Jin recognizes the significant project code named Stardust as her nickname when she is reading through the list of files? Well, she says she knows that is the file because she is Stardust. When I first saw that, I, I took it as Galen Erso missing his daughter and naming the file that because he was thinking about her or something. But at the beginning of the film, when Krennic has his troopers land, Galen Erso urgently tells his young daughter to go collect her things and adds, I love you, Stardust. That makes me think that Galen was planting that seed in her all those years ago so that when he sent Saw Gerrera the message about the plans, Jin would know like she did. That line, gather your things, and then calling her by her nickname in that moment, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into that. What do you think, Steve? 
Maybe a little bit. I, I don't think that this was necessarily uh, part of any grand scheme of, on Galen's part. I just think that Stardust was always his name for Jin, and that it wasn't connected to the Death Star at all originally. I think it's more likely that when Galen devised his plan, he wanted to use something that Jin would be able to recognize and then use if he couldn't do it himself. So we use that personal name that only he and Jin would know uh, the significance of. So Galen probably always hoped that Jin would be able to get the reference and then act on it, but he had no assurance of that. But he likely did plant various seeds in there, counting on Jin to be able to make sense of them. I suppose that does sound more likely. I, I, I tend to look for breadcrumbs in a movie, and sometimes I connect dots that, sounds, that might sound good on paper, but aren't necessarily all that practical. Uh, but I do have to ask a question that I'm hoping you might be able to shed some light on, Steve. They cannot seem to nail down a designation for Tarkin. In the promotional materials for Episode 4, he was listed as Grand Moff Tarkin, and occasionally he was even listed as Admiral Tarkin. However, in the actual movie, he was listed as Governor Tarkin. He was even called Governor Tarkin by Leia when she when she was brought before him. We see here in Rogue One that he is again called Governor. The word Moff is never used in a live-action Star Wars film, save for a deleted scene in Solo, a Star Wars story from 2018. So I tend to want to stick with Governor as his title, but I'm curious if there was ever anything in Legends or current comic books or whatever that, that might mention why he has all these different titles. Actually, I think I have an explanation for that. My understanding is that Moff and Governor are more or less used interchangeably. From what I've been able to gather, um, a Moff is a political title, which notes the governor of an entire sector. A Grand Moff is the governor of a group of sectors. So someone like Moff Gideon, uh, for example, uh, would rule a sector, and then Tarkin as a Grand Moff uh, holds a higher rank than that. But um, Tarkin also holds a military rank in addition to his rank as governor. Tarkin was a captain in the Republic military during the Clone Wars, so he was a military officer before he took the governorship. So uh, Tarkin's uh, close connection to Palpatine probably allowed him to rise to the ranks quickly, and that's probably why he's listed as an admiral. Likely his rise to power was then accelerated when Palpatine became emperor. I wouldn't even be surprised if his governor titles were given to him directly by Palpatine himself. So it makes sense that Tarkin holds an admiral's rank as well as the rank of Grand Moff. That... That actually clears things up a lot. I, I had no idea what a moth was. Uh, and with positions in both the government and in the military, uh, multiple titles makes a lot of sense. So thank you for that. Uh, but now we have reached our final thoughts portion of, of this episode. You know, Rogue One is described as the Star Wars prequel Star Wars fans always wanted and have, and I have to agree. I personally love Rogue One and it is the only Star Wars movie that seems to get better and more enjoyable every time I watch it. It also gave me my favorite droid in K2SO. Sorry to all of you R2D2 and C3PO fans out there, but not just K2SO. The whole cast is really good. I, I would rate Rogue One as a solid 10 out of 10 Star Wars film. Uh, but what about you, Steve? What are your final thoughts on the film and, and how would you rate it? I, I would generally agree with that ranking. Uh, Rogue, Rogue One is far away the best of the Disney Star Wars films. And it compares favorably to quite a few even of the Lucas era films. Um, I've talked about a couple of quibbles that I have with Rogue One here and there, but these points are all minor in the scheme of things. There is nothing that gets in the way of my enjoyment of the movie. Um, while uh, Empire Strikes Back is still my favorite Star Wars film, I feel like Rogue One gives it some good competition. Um, as for favorite characters, I have to go with Chirrut uh, Imwe as well as K2SO. K2 is not my favorite droid. Uh, that honor goes to uh, HK-47 from the uh, Knights of the Old Republic games, but he's one of the best of the Disney-era droids for sure. 
Oh, Chirrut is definitely up there as far as favorite characters go. As far as K2SO goes, I will take that. Uh, the moment where he tells Cassian that there's a fresh one if you mouse off again is still one of my all-time favorite Star Wars moments. <laughs> but that about wraps up part one of our late Star Wars Day episode for 2023. I have had a blast digging into this, and I can't wait to dive into the Andor series next week. So until then, let me th thank our patrons who make this podcast possible. I hope you've had fun hanging out with us today on ORP. I know that Steve and I have had fun making this episode. If you've had fun too, we invite you to share this episode and help us get the word out. For our Spotify listeners, we ask you to please rate our show as well. That can really help to grow our audience. But to all our listeners everywhere, we want to say thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.